This is The Rounds Table. All right, welcome back, Rounds Table listeners. We have another episode in store for you today, and it's all about heart failure. John, how are things in Calgary? Hey, Mike. Uh, things in Calgary are going pretty good. I think uh, we've just kind of Groundhog Day, you know. Uh, COVID's still here, but so is all the other complicated medical stuff. So nice to talk about some non-COVID stuff this week, though. Totally. I agree. All right, John, what do you have up for us first? Well, first, we're actually going to take a little bit of a dive back to November 2020. I think you and I were probably covering some COVID papers at that time, but this was something published in Lancet, and it was ferric carboxymaltose for iron deficiency at discharge after acute heart failure, a multicenter double-blind RCT, and this was by Panikowski et al. Cool. What was the research question? They wanted to know what is the effect of IV iron in patients admitted with acute heart failure and iron deficiency on hospitalizations and cardiovascular death up to 52 weeks? Yeah, you know, I'm a big fan of IV iron. So uh, if I saw this, I'd be like, yep, let's review it. Uh, But why did this catch your eye? Well, you know, there's a lot of things to consider when it comes to iron deficiency. And in fact, regardless of anemia, iron deficiency in patients with CHF has been shown to increase risk for hospitalizations and mortality. There have been some randomized controlled trials to show that IV iron improves symptoms, exercise capacity, and quality of life in patients with heart failure. Uh, But there's not a lot of prospective data on whether or not IV iron leads to other favorable clinical outcomes. Yeah, this, uh, you know, all makes sense to me. And I feel like those outcomes enough are probably sufficient for me to prescribe it. But anyway, what was the study design uh, here? You're right. They, they probably should be good enough. But this was a multi-center RCT placebo controlled at 121 sites in Europe, South America, as well as Singapore. Uh, patients were 18 or older, hospitalized with acute heart failure, needing IV Lasix with an EF of less than 50%. Um, They also had to have iron deficiency, and specifically, this was defined as a ferritin of less than 100 or 100 to 299 with a T-sat of less than 20%. Patients were randomized one-to-one to to IV iron versus placebo, and for the placebo, they they did their best. They tried to have the placebo in black syringes to try to maintain blinding. Um, Patients got at least two doses. The first dose of iron was around the time of discharge, and then again, six weeks post-discharge. They could have received further doses at week 12 and 24 if iron deficiency persisted. Uh, For the primary outcome, it was a composite of heart failure hospitalizations and cardiovascular death up to 52 weeks. And secondary outcomes, well, there was a whole bunch, and and some of those included some safety assessments for any adverse effects. Uh, This was a modified intention-to-treat analysis and, and included all randomized patients who got at least one dose of iron treatment. Um, And now, I guess worth mentioning that the pharma company did have a role in assembly of data, data analysis, and data interpretation. All right. And what did the patients who were enrolled, what did they look like? So they screened about 1,500 patients from 2017 to 2019, and 1,132 were randomized. The average age was about 71 years old, 95% were white, 40% had prior MI, 85% with hypertension, 55% with AFib, 40% with CKD, kind of a typical looking patient population. And from an EF perspective, the average ejection fraction was 32%. The majority of patients had a reduced ejection fraction. Yeah, this looks like a you know typical patient that I'd be caring for at Sinai or Sault Ste. Marie. Um, so what did they find in this study? So for the primary outcome, 
uh, they looked at it in, in kind of patient years. And so in the iron group, 57.2 per 100 patient years had a primary outcome in the iron group compared to 72.5 per 100 patient years in the placebo group. What this translated to was a 20% relative risk reduction. Uh, unfortunately, the confidence interval just sneaked past one. Uh, for some of the secondary outcomes, uh, it was pretty clear that this was largely driven by hospitalization. So it was a reduction in heart failure hospitalizations with a, rel with a relative risk of 0.74, and there's no difference in cardiovascular death. Uh, from a safety perspective, similar adverse events between iron and placebo uh, patients, um, and then the average dose of the uh, iron carboxymaltose was about 1,352 milligrams. All right, and what were the main limitations in your eyes? Well, I guess one of them is always just a little bit concerning when industry's got their fingers in potential uh, data management and interpretation, but that's okay. It is what it is. Um, I mean, by design, it's a little hard to maybe replicate this from a healthcare systems perspective because patients got that first dose while an inpatient, but the second dose was an outpatient. And like that's not always easy or feasible to coordinate. Yeah, I definitely agree. It's pretty much impossible. Um at least, you know, in the places where I work, getting it as an outpatient is really hard. Anyway, what's the take home point? Well, I mean, IV iron in patients with heart failure and iron deficiency lowered risk for hospitalizations, which is a pretty important clinical outcome, uh, but it did not lead to fewer cardiovascular deaths. Yeah, see, you and I just will never agree on this. It seems like I don't care if the confidence interval is just above one. You know, that's an impressive relative risk reduction this stuff is well tolerated. Cost doesn't matter in my mind. So I guess you and I disagree. I don't care that the confidence rules just passed one, uh, but it matters more to you, it seems. No, I'm actually okay with it too. Like, I think that this is, you know, something that we need to incorporate into our practice. I think it's just a matter of me remembering to check their iron stores. Oh, it sounds like it's more like you to remember to check the p-value. Love those freaking p-values and confidence <laughs> intervals. So anyway, is this practice changing for you? I think so. I think I think this data is important. Um, you know, it's it's interesting because actually, if you look back on the CCS guidelines, so those are the, the important Canadian guidelines. Um, they were updated last in 2017 specifically with respect to IV iron. And actually back then they even said that IV iron is recommended due to the improvement in quality of life and symptom benefits. So those outcomes alone, the most recent updates don't further speak to this. Um, and then, you know, I think the American society just released updated heart failure guidelines. Uh, they give it grade 2A recommendation for IV iron if you have reduced EF and iron deficiency. But again, they actually focus in on the improvement in functional status and quality of life and, and don't speak to the outcomes from this trial yeah i'm sold i mean i love to use iv iron in hospital for patients with iron deficiency and often the pharmacists say oh but can't we try oral ivy is more expensive and i don't really care <laughs> not my problem um so here's another reason for me to use some iv iron and to take a close look at what their ferritin and tsat are all right, cool. Well, we will stay on the theme of heart failure. Um, the study I'll be reviewing is called the SGLT2 inhibitor and pagliflozin in patients hospitalized for acute heart failure, a multinational randomized trial published in Nature Medicine in 2022. Now, we also know that you love your SGLT2 inhibitors. So what was the question here? 
yeah, that's the conflict of interest here. I don't take money from the makers of STL-T2s, but I personally have a bias and I'm a big fan of them. So research question, is it safe and effective to start an STL-T2 inhibitor among patients hospitalized with heart failure? Okay, why was this an important question for you? You know, it's heart failure, full stop. I feel like that's all the justification really needed, but to take it another step further, uh, obviously, when patients come into hospital, you know, we give them some Lasix, we give them some more Lasix, they get an ACE or ARB, some get a nitro patch, we continue their beta blocker. But there's been very few in terms of new treatments. And yes, there are the ARNIs, but we're not going to talk about that here. So really big um, unmet need in this population. And I also think a lot of hospitals have a little bit backwards, uh, you know, restricting the use of SGLT2s in hospitals. So um, those are a few reasons why I thought this was an important study to talk about. Yeah, this sounds really important. I mean, I can't remember where it was, but there was an interesting study that showed that like, if you don't initiate some of these important therapies while the patient is in hospital, chances are they're not going to get on them in the future. And so this is uh, going to be important to maybe help further push that importance. Uh, what was the design here? Yeah, but I totally agree with that point, John, because sometimes I hear people say, oh, well, let's just leave it for the family doctor to do. Like the family doctor will take care of it. And I think, like, what planet do you live on? You think we're busy in the inpatient setting? Family doctors are way busier. There's prescribing inertia everywhere around us. If we start that drug, I think they're far more likely to continue it as opposed to us just kicking the can down the road and expecting the family doc to start it. I think that's totally fair. You know, uh, we have the opportunity to have all the data points to say that, yeah, it could be safe and effective. So let's kind of help our colleagues out and get them started if it's the right thing to do. Totally. Yeah. So to answer your actual question, um, this is a double blind international industry funded randomized trial. Uh, patients were randomized to empagliflozin 10 milligrams once a day versus placebo for up to 90 days. Who did they include? Um, patients with decompensated heart failure. Uh, it didn't matter what their um, LV ejection fraction was. They just need to have a systolic blood pressure of 100 or higher on a stable dose of Lasix or nitrates in the past six hours, an elevated BNP, and on at least 40 milligrams of IV Lasix. Uh, exclusion criteria, cardiogenic shock, uh, PE, uh, stroke or MI as a trigger, um, or if either occurred in the past 90 days, GFR less than 20 or on dialysis uh, or um, they had diabetic ketoacidosis. The primary outcome was a little bit confusing uh, and I will gloss over it a little bit. So it was this composite of clinical benefit and they used a hierarchical analysis. So it was a composite of all-cause death, number of heart failure events, time to first heart failure event, or a five point or more difference in change from baseline in the Kansas City cardiomyopathy questionnaire at least 90 days. And this was assessed using something called a win ratio. Again, I'm not gonna go into the nitty gritties here, uh, but the one thing I will note is that randomization occurred after the patient was stabilized, generally on the third day of their hospitalization. Okay, so what did the patients look like? 
So 566 were screened and 530 were randomized across 118 centers in 15 countries, which is pretty unbelievable. Um, average age, 71, 34% were women, 78% were white, uh, 65% had an ejection fraction that was less than 40%. Uh, 40% of patients had diabetes. And then in terms of like the drugs they were on and their heart failure stuff, 70% were on an ACE or ARB or ARNI. Uh, 80% were on a beta blocker. 50% were on um, MRA, such as, you know, spironolactone. Uh, 50% had NYHA3 symptoms. So like pretty impressive uh, symptoms, pretty severe symptoms. And most had a BNP of about 3,300. Okay, so was the win ratio favorable? Yes, the win ratio was favorable if you were the manufacturer of empagliflozin, okay? Um, so um, what did they find? So uh, essentially what they find were improved outcomes uh, of this composite outcome, a 40% relative improvement regardless of whether the patients had diabetes, regardless of their ejection fraction. Um, and, and as I alluded to, they use this interesting approach that involved sort of paired comparisons to assess this win ratio. All right. So, you know, if a patient's still alive, that's a win compared to the placebo group, for example. Um, but I'm not going to go into this further. I, I will break down the composite a bit because I think it'll really bring things to life. So the risk of death in the placebo arm was 8%. The risk of death in the empagliflozin arm was 4%. Risk of heart failure events was 15% in the placebo arm as opposed to 10% in the empagliflozin arm. And similarly, uh, risk of cardiovascular death or heart failure, 19% in the placebo group uh, versus 13% in the empagliflozin group. It's important to think about harms and risks. Um, serious adverse events were more common in the placebo arm compared to the empagliflozin arm, about 45% versus 30%. Um, there were no DKA events. The risk of acute renal failure was lower in the empagliflozin arm, and they also had a lower rate of UTI. And finally, there was a higher rate of discontinuation in the placebo arm. Okay, those are some pretty impressive outcomes. I mean, like pretty reasonable absolute risk reductions, in fact. Uh, what are some of the limitations here? So this is a relatively small randomized controlled trial, and certainly as more time passes, I like to see, you know, ideally two uh, randomized trials showing consistent results, especially when you have a small one like this. Uh, also, this composite outcome, you know, we don't love composite outcomes because then, you know, not all of those composites are weighted equally. For example, like keeping somebody alive is far more important than, you know, their score on this Kansas City uh, questionnaire. Um, and then a lot of people would say, oh, it's funded by industry. But I don't know. I sometimes think just because it's funded by industry doesn't mean it's necessarily you know, a crummy trial. I sometimes think industry probably does a better job of running these trials because there are a ton of work. Anywho, those are some of the limitations. Okay, what's the take home? Empagliflozin appears to be safe and effective in the setting of heart failure exacerbation leading to hospitalization. So, you know, it, it <laughs> it's hard to deny uh, their effectiveness. Safety, of course, we need some more data on that, but that's a take-home point. It really appears that these drugs are effective to be started in hospital when somebody's there for heart failure, regardless of whether or not they have diabetes. Yeah, seems like it is definitely a win 
for SGLT2 inhibitors, pun intended. Uh, practice changing for you? Yeah, it really is. Um, you know, we're recording April 2022. And as you've alluded to, you know, the American Cardiology Society just released their updated guidelines. And, you know, they're big fans of SGLT2s. Um, the Canadian guidelines specifically talk about SGLT2s being started in hospital for heart failure and sort of give it a thumbs up. So I agree. And, and as I mentioned, you like to have more than one trial. Well, guess what? We're not going to talk about it here, but there's been two other clinical trials. Um, one, the soloist WHF trial, and the other, the response AHF trial, both looking at SGLT2 started in hospital um, uh, for heart failure and both showing benefit. So there's been a recent meta-analysis, which puts like the 14th cherry on top that this is likely the drug to use when somebody's in hospital with heart failure. Yeah, I think the the evidence is uh, pretty compelling. Totally agree. It is good stuff for the makers of empagliflozin. It will be good stuff for patients hospitalized with heart failure. And what good stuff are you going to share with us, John? That's a really good segue. Uh, Well, you know, for the uh, Canadians that are our listeners, something pretty big happened recently. The Canadians men team qualified for the World Cup for the first time in 36 years. You and I played soccer as kids. And, and I remember, you know, just like a World Cup would happen, but Canada was never in it. So you'd end up sort of cheering for some other country. Um, so it's pretty exciting. I mean, the men's team has really done quite, uh, quite an amazing thing. And so let's see what happens when the World Cup happens. I agree. I threw my allegiance towards England for the past 12 some odd years. I really don't have great justification for that. So it'll be nice to, uh, you know, purchase another jersey still red, but this time with a Canadian leaf on it and to cheer for our team. All right. And then the good stuff on my end, just a shameless plug here. Um, so uh, my, my research team has created a cool website called sglt 2 rx.com and it's a, a, a nice website not funded by industry it involved a patient partner um, to sort of provide doctors internists family docs with an overview of sglt2s uh, and then you type in the person's age and a couple other things and it will provide you with the relative and absolute risk reductions as a you know patient FAQ you can print out for the patient, talks about the cost, yada, yada, yada. So anyway, I'm proud of my team's work and hence plugging it on this episode about heart failure. Oh, that's great. Yeah, we'll have a link for the the tool on our website too, so you can check that out. Awesome. All right, John, we'll take care, uh, stay safe, and we'll chat again soon. Okay, talk to you soon, Mike. The Rounds Table is hosted online at healthydebate.ca. Follow us on Twitter at Rounds Table. Thanks to our audio editors, Emilio Garcia Flores and Arjun Sharma. Also thanks to Amol Verma, founder of The Rounds Table, and Kieran Quinn, the previous director. We'd also like to give a big thanks to Seema Marwaha, editor-in-chief at Healthy Debate, for all the support.